Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Hey, welcome into the podcast, Downtown, the podcast. Rich Kimball here with Carrie Haskell. We're brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Episode number 167 this week. Two guests for you this time around. A little bit later on, we talk with our friend Julia Duffy. You know her best as Stephanie Vanderkellen in Newhart, but she's been very busy since Newhart left the air doing all kinds of things. And we talk with her about, uh, well, the recent virtual Newhart reunion and her appearance on the Showtime series Black Monday. That's coming up a bit later on. But first up on the podcast this week, what an interesting guy. His name is Jonathan Taplin, and he has led quite a life. He uh, he worked with legendary uh, music impresario Albert Grossman back in the 1960s, working with uh, people like Bob Dylan, Joan Baez, and others, the band. Uh, he would go on to become a successful producer in Hollywood, producing Martin Scorsese's first feature film, Mean Streets, the band documentary, The Last Waltz, and uh, films like Under Fire and To Die For. And then he went on to work uh, in the financial world, was on the cutting edge of video-on-demand technology back in the 1980s, and he chronicles all of it in a brand-new book called The Magic Years, Scenes from a Rock and Roll Life. Here's Jonathan Taplin on Downtown. I love learning about your life, and and, uh, as someone who's, who's had a few careers of my own along the way, I was especially impressed with the fact that you've been able to transition so many times and, and take, uh, well, I guess what we would call leaps of faith. Ultimately, were those leaps of faith in yourself? I guess so. I mean, I think, you know, anytime you come to a place where uh, a new opportunity presents itself, uh, you you probably have to start with the thought, could I pull this off? So, you know, I was, I was fairly deep in the rock and roll business in 72. I had finished the concert for Bangladesh. But most of the musicians that I cared for had stopped touring. And George Harrison didn't want to tour, and Bob Dylan didn't want to tour, and the the band wasn't touring as much. And so I just thought, well, I'll go to Hollywood and see what's going on in the movie business. And a friend said, well, if you're out there, look up this friend of mine named Marty Scorsese. He's a film editor who worked on Woodstock, and he loves music. And um, you guys would get along. So I went out and met him. And I was so naive. I didn't know that I couldn't produce a movie. And and I also didn't know that you weren't supposed to put your own money into movies. <laughs> uh, you know, there's a phrase out here called OPM, other people's money. Right. Uh, but no one had told me about OPM. So I just made, a, as you said, a blind leap of faith. Uh, I had I saw Marty's student films and I loved them and I thought, well, why not? And somehow I got a friend to put in half the money and I put in half the money and we made it for Mean Streets for five hundred thousand dollars and and it worked out really well. So uh, you know that's the kind of thing that that happens and you kind of just have to be open to the change and and think to yourself, well, would that be a better life or more autonomy or, you know, those kind of things. And part of that seems to go back to uh, what might well be your guiding principles uh, that I I was fascinated by 
that you take from the philosopher Epicurus uh, and those three benchmarks of a good life and finding autonomy, certainly a big part of that. It's huge. You know, I mean, obviously, Epicurus says you have first you need a company of good friends who support you, but then you need the autonomy to do work that makes you feel valued in some way. And I think a lot of us tend to somehow think that work doesn't necessarily have to be make them feel autonomous, make them feel like they have some agency in the world. Uh, a lot of people just put in their time. But, you know, if you're going to have a really satisfying life, that's a really important part of it. And then the third element of that is to have some kind of core faith or philosophy that orients your life. Uh, and, and that, of course, is also hard for a lot of people to find. I love that message. When I'm not on the radio, I, I teach high school students. And one of the messages I always give them, and I, and I say, look, I'm, I'm the old guy. I, I don't give a lot of advice, but, but I believe in this one because I've experienced it myself. You're going to work for a long, long time. And, and as, as Social Security is in peril, who knows if you can count on your employer to take care of you. Retirement may not be an option. So you better do something that you find fulfilling and also be willing to, to change up on the fly and try something else because no amount of money can make you get excited about going to a job that you despise. Exactly. You know, the classic phrase, nobody ever wrote on their grave, I wish I'd worked more on Friday evenings. <laughs> you know, I mean. <laughs> well, your book is uh, absolutely wonderful and so many unforgettable characters. And, and let's start with one that certainly changed your direction in life uh, when you were a student at Princeton and you met Albert Grossman. Yeah, Albert was, in 1965, when I met him, the most important manager in the folk music business. He managed Bob Dylan and Peter, Paul, and Mary, and Odetta, and Paul Butterfield Blues Band, and, you know, just just the cream of the crop of, of the people who were really making this new important music called folk music. And uh, he he was not the classic kind of hail fellow, well-met, backslapping showbiz guy at all. He was very contained, very taciturn. Uh, he, he he had a kind of interesting affect in the sense that he was had a very long hair for, for 1964 or 1965 sometimes pulled back in a ponytail. It was going gray prematurely. He had little tiny little glasses. So he looked like Ben Franklin had come back <laughs> into the 60s. And um, But somehow we got along really well. Uh, and he slowly gave me more responsibility. I mean, I started out working for one of his smaller groups, which was called the Jim Queskin Jug Band, which, you know, for folks in the Northeast probably have heard of it, but not a lot of others have. And and, and also and that, uh, that produced Maria and Jeff Muldaur. Yeah, uh, very important. Probably the two of the greatest white blues singers in America. And um, they, I worked for them for about a year and a half, but then uh, I did some work for Judy Collins. And then eventually I graduated to working for the band when they decided that they were going to go out and be their own, having left the wing of Bob Dylan as, as his backup band. Uh, then eventually, Bob Dylan uh, 
joined back into the the fray and and decided to go play the Isle of Wight with the band in 1969. And so that's how I, I came to work with Bob. So it was, but Albert, Albert was very uh, important and, and also had a very good sense of what you shouldn't do. You know, in the late sixties, there were a lot of television shows like Shindig and Hullabaloo that were Mm. broadcasting rock and roll every week. And Albert just said, you got to avoid those like the plague. That's, that's the kiss of death. And uh, we did. And his theory was if Ed Sullivan calls you, you'll take the call, but otherwise (laughs) don't go on television. (laughs) We're talking with Jonathan Taplin about his book, the magic years scenes from a rock and roll life. Uh, We had uh, Elijah Wald on our show a couple of years ago, talking about his book, Dylan goes electric. You were there for one of the most, seminal moments in music history. Well, what's the biggest misperception about what went on in Newport? Well, I, first off, I think, you know, Bob did it on the spur of a moment. My my theory is uh, I, I had walked back with Albert from a, a kind of dust-up on a Saturday afternoon workshop where Alan Lomax, the famous blues collector, had tried to unplug the Paul Butterfield blues band uh, and and was you know railing about electric music shouldn't be at Newport at the Newport Folk Festival and Albert had taken Lomax on and <laughs> which is by the way one of my favorite moments in the book <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean they kind of wrestled in the mud there and, and Lomax <laughs> left and so I walked back with Albert and Jeff Moldar to the artist tent and and Moldar began regaling all the Grossman artists about how Albert had stuck up for Paul Butterfield. And, uh, and, and I saw Dylan listen to the story and kind of smile. And I, my surmise is that Bob just on the spur of the moment thought, well, if they're so uptight about Paul Butterfield playing, what, what if I play rock and roll on the closing night, the closing, I'm the top act on Sunday night, that'll really (laughs) put their knickers in a twist. And, uh, so he just did it, and he organized very quickly this band made up of, you know, Mike Bloomfield from Butterfield and, and the Butterfield Rhythm Section, and Al Cooper came in. And, and so it was not very well rehearsed. It was not very well mixed because nobody at Newport knew how to deal with rock and roll. And um, But the biggest shock, of course, was that the audience, for whom Bob Dylan was a god, booed him and basically booed him off the stage. And he walked out after playing three songs when he was supposed to play a set of eight songs. And uh, eventually he came back and played a couple of acoustic numbers as, as a kind of kiss off. But it was pretty shocking. I'll tell you that. I was happy to see uh, several names come up of people that we've had on our show. One of them has been on a number of times. Uh, Van Dyke Parks, for my money, is one of the most interesting people in in all of the music world. Oh, I love Van Dyke. Um, One of the most interesting writers of lyrics uh, that that you can imagine. I mean, and and, and an extraordinary mind. I mean, obviously, since you've had him on your show, you know that... He's also one of the great punsters of all time. <laughs> yes, indeed. He has, a, he has a way of putting language together that, that's quite great. And and uh, 
I encountered him for the first time at the Big Sur Folk Festival in 1967. And uh, we were both kind of amazed at what was going on there. You know, it was at, at the Esalen Institute, which is this beautiful place on the coast of the Pacific in Big Sur. And, um, you know, with these huge hot tubs and, you know, it was just, it was pretty loose. I mean, there was psilocybin had, had kind of come into the consciousness of, of the the world at that time. And, and it was, it was, it was a very crazy, but quite beautiful uh, couple of days in Big Sur. And, and Van Dyke wrote a little bit to me about his memory of that, <laughs> that time, which was quite amusing, I thought. Now, you're a little bit older than me, but uh, I think we have the same political sensibilities. I was inspired as, as just a, a young, young guy uh, by John F. Kennedy and the notion of uh, uh, the country asking us as citizens to, to do things, to, uh, to rise up and help up. But you say that uh, political revolution failed and it was the election of Nixon that sort of sealed that fate. But the cultural revolution, our artists, our creatives continued to push that narrative forward. Yeah. I mean, look, for those of us who were really involved politically, the spring of 1968 was a tremendous shock, tragedy, heartbreak, whatever you want to say. I mean, that both Martin Luther King and then Bobby Kennedy got killed within two months of each other. Um, those were the kind of the last two political heroes of, of my generation who were standing up against the war, who were for civil rights. And and by contrast, you had Nixon, who was saying that all this dissent was un-American and was, you know, basically getting the hard hats to beat up the anti-war protesters mm. and, and was, you know, a kind of earlier version of what Donald Trump played. And I think the, the deep disappointment of especially Bobby Kennedy's death caused a lot of us to kind of turn away from politics and just say, screw it, it'll only break your heart. <clears throat> and in that sense, that, of course, was a great mistake because we ended up with Nixon as president and probably a lot of people didn't even vote in the election of 1968 because Hubert Humphrey wasn't a very inspiring candidate. He was for the war and everything. So but if you think a year later... Here comes Woodstock, and all of a sudden there's this sense that this counterculture is incredibly powerful. The very fact that 350,000 people showed up in a cow pasture in upstate New York was kind of shocking to everyone, and especially shocking to Madison Avenue, <laughs> I think, because all of a sudden they, they realized that this notion of the Woodstock nation for their purposes, would be the successor to the Pepsi generation. You know, in other words, a kind of rally around the flag feeling. Right. Uh, but it was the freak flag. It was the, you know, you could sell Volkswagens with hippies, you know. And and um, that was both a good thing and a bad thing, you know. I mean, obviously, it got pretty co-opted fairly quickly. and uh, And, of course, it took a generation or two to get the young people back to think about politics. You, you make a very powerful point about uh, music in the late 60s and early 70s and how many major cities in the country had the, not only their own sound but had progressive 
FM stations that play those local artists. And and like so much else, uh, corporate greed uh, swallowed up local radio to a large extent and, and helped change the music business, not always for the best. I think it is one of the great tragedies of America in the sense that, you know, America never was a unified nation. Anybody saying, oh, all these immigrants are trying to take over our culture or American culture or whatever that was, <laughs> that, that's a complete BS, you know, because America is made up of many nations, you know, the Dutch in New York and the, Eng you know, the Puritans up in New England and, the, you know, the peoples in the Midwest that came from, you know, and Appalachia that came from the Scotch-Irish immigrants. And so America's always had this immigrant culture, but it's many cultures, and each of them had their own music. So the, the bluegrass music came out of that Scotch-Irish thing, and, and the Western music out of the Texas kind of cow singing cowboy, and the country music out of a kind of amalgam of Nashville and other places. And then you have folk music, which was in Boston and was in New York. And then you have blues music, which came up from Mississippi. And you have jazz, which migrates from New Orleans up to uh, Chicago. <coughs> and all of them, at one time or another, had their own sound and their own way of playing. So, I mean, in 1970, I remember the band did a tour of the South. And we started in San Antonio, Texas, and there was a certain kind of music, Sir Douglas Quintet in San Antonio, and we went up to Austin, and there was Willie Nelson and the kind of rebellious cowboy music, and then we went over to New Orleans, and there was Dr. John and Alan Toussaint, it was totally different. We went up to Memphis, and there was Otis Redding and Stax Fultz, and then we went you know, to Nashville, and there was a completely other thing. And every one of those cities had something unique. Just like Detroit music was very different from Chicago music. Just like San Francisco music was very different from Los Angeles music. And Seattle and Portland were grunge. And, and, and that, that's the genius of America. And to have Clear Channel buy up all the radio stations and broadcast from one place everywhere is just wrecked it just destroyed that sense of cultural uniqueness and in a way i really believe that it's also an educational problem in the sense that i don't think kids appreciate that they may like jay-z but they don't really understand that jay-z <clears throat> looks to marvin gay and marvin gay looked to clyde mcfatter right. and clyde mcfatter looked to muddy waters and muddy waters look to Sun House and Robert Johnson. And, and so, you know, a lot of what I'm thinking about now is how do you use this way of, of using music to get people to understand geography and history and all sorts of other ways to educate people. You can't really talk about the history of rock music without talking about drugs, and uh, they play a part in your story. And it seems like there was a, a pretty clear line of demarcation somewhere late 60s, early 70s, between the musicians that were, were using weed and then the turn to things like cocaine and heroin. Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, the, the, up till 1970, nobody that I came into contact knew anything about cocaine. 
Uh, it just didn't exist. And uh, but once that started coming in, you know, Levon Helm, who was the drummer in the, the band, used to call it philosopher's powder because <laughs> his joke was it made everybody into a philosopher. They thought they were so smart. <clears throat> but it also just made people think they were smarter than they really were. And and I think, you know, obviously amphetamine does the same thing. And, and maybe those two things, meth and cocaine, have, have been a, a real problem for America ever since the early 70s. Um, and then as for heroin, you know, there was always a certain kind of mythos around, you know, Charlie Parker mm. or the blues musician who shot Smack. And it was a stupid mythos, you know, that, that people like Keith Richards and Eric Clapton bought into, and Janis Joplin as well. And some of them survived it, and some of them didn't survive it. And it's really a tragedy. And, and you know, Janice's death, which affected me a lot because I knew her, and, I, and I'm positive it was a complete mistake, um, you know, snuffed her out when she was at the most creative time of her life. <laughs> and and that's, that's a true tragedy. And the same with Jimi Hendrix, you know, just stupid. I was amused uh, to learn that uh, the actor who played Max Fisher's dad in Rushmore, Seymour Cassell, had the best weed in Los Angeles. Oh, by far. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you mentioned the move uh, at there's, the... There's no <laughs> no wonderment why all the musicians used to hang out at Seymour's house <laughs> on top of the Sunset Strip. <laughs> uh, you, you mentioned the move uh, into movies and uh, production at the urging of your friend Jay Cox. Uh, you worked, of course, with Martin Scorsese on Main Streets, went on to make a, a string of wonderful documentaries, including The Last Waltz, what I, I think uh, most people would agree is, is, if not the best concert film ever made, it's certainly in that conversation. And again, it, it captured such a powerful moment in time. Yeah, The Last Waltz was a, a very unique kind of lucky piece of a lot of things coming together at once. I mean, Robbie Robertson had, had decided that he wanted to stop touring and the notion of, of having a kind of final show with all of the friends that the band had kind of accumulated over the years came together very quickly. And then I suggested to Robbie that if we were going to do a film of it, that we should at least give Marty Scorsese a, an opportunity to direct it, even though he was in the middle of shooting a, his first really big movie, which was New York, New York. And Marty, of course, said, you can't let anybody else do this. I'm going to do it. And and we luckily, the concert was over Thanksgiving weekend. And in the movie business, they treat Thanksgiving very generously. They let you off like early on Wednesday and you don't have to be back Monday morning. So Marty was able to essentially sneak away from the movie set of New York, New York and get come up to San Francisco. And we made the, the, the film and it was just almost perfect in the sense of Marty's sense of how you shoot a music documentary in the sense of being very careful to make sure that there is a, a cameraman on the guitar player exactly when the solo starts or that there's a cameraman on Garth Hudson when he's doing some 
incredible organ lick or something. And and that just that made it different from most of the documentaries that had come before. We're talking with Jonathan Taplin. His new book is The Magic Years, Scenes from a Rock and Roll Life. You were on the cusp of streaming media with uh, Entertainer, of Video on Demand uh, back in the 80s. Uh, you wrote in your last book, uh, Move Fast and Break Things, about social media, tech giants, and, and the direction we're going, and that, that genie's never going back in the bottle. But how do we as consumers exert more control? Well, you know, my thought is that, quite honestly, if, if Facebook had been around in 1955, we'd still have polio. <laughs> and uh, that's a problem. I mean, there's a reason why one-third of America refuses to get vaccinated. And that's because they're fed a daily stream of disinformation right. on Facebook. And <clears throat> there's almost no way to combat that as long as Facebook is allowed to just put up anything it wants with no liability. You know, you notice, of course, when, when Fox News and Newsmax spouted a lot of lies about election interference and that these Voting machine companies had shifted their votes from Biden to from Trump to Biden. As soon as that happened, those companies sued both Fox and Newsmax. And within a week, Fox and Newsmax put a disclaimer. In fact, I saw a, a little clip yesterday of, of Trump giving a speech at the Conservative Political Action Conference on Fox the other day. And, and Fox put a a chyron underneath it saying, this is not true, what he's wow. saying about the voting machine company. Because they knew they they would they were going to get sued for billions of dollars if they kept promoting this lie. But no one can sue Facebook because the U.S. government gave them something called a safe harbor uh, and, and in which Facebook ostensibly is not responsible for anything that is on its platform. In other words, it's just, it's just a platform. It's not a publisher. But that's nonsense. You know, Facebook gives you a totally different feed than it gives me. It's constantly making editorial decisions, many of them made by algorithms, but still it's a publisher. It's the largest publisher in the world. And until we get rid of these safe harbors, uh, we're, we're going to have a lot of trouble with these uh, social networks. Well, Jonathan, the new book is absolutely fascinating. I, I could talk with you all day. It has been a real treat. I advise everybody to read the book. You will love The Magic Years, Scenes from a Rock and Roll Life. And, uh, John, I hope we can get to back together and talk again sometime. Look, Rich, it's my pleasure. I really appreciate it. Jonathan Taplin talking about his new book, The Magic Years, Scenes from a Rock and Roll Life. Every time we talk with, with somebody like that, we've had a, a slew of them lately. Those people who were there when when incredibly important moments in music or film history happened, that it's it's so interesting to get that firsthand experience. Yeah, and it's a reminder that that stuff doesn't happen in a vacuum. That, yes, it's the person doing it, but there's hundreds of people in the immediate mm. area when, when it happens, and it's always interesting to get their take on that event as it happened. Yeah, because it's not filtered by anything other than their own eyewitness account. Although, as we've also found, you know, sometimes someone who's right there 
maybe doesn't see other aspects of the story too. The mm. the perspective is always interesting. But but great stuff from Jonathan Taplin, a very enjoyable book as well. I will take a quick break here from our friends at Cross Insurance, and then we're back with Julia Duffy next on the podcast. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Hey, we're back on Downtown the Podcast, episode number on downtown best known for her several seasons as stephanie vander kellen on the classic series new heart she's kept busy through the years with stage and television work shows like shameless and a terrific recent appearance on the showtime series black monday here's julia duffy on downtown the podcast well thank you so much for uh, spending a little time with us today julia good to talk with you again well thank you it's good to be here uh, I loved your performance. I had not seen any of Black Monday until I watched last night, but but now I think I need to go back and get caught up. Wow, what a terrific yeah, series. Yeah. You do need to get caught up. I had never seen the show. I didn't even know the show existed. I guess I didn't have showtime for a while. And so you don't know if you don't have that particular service. Um, I don't know how I missed it because it's full of actors I adore. So I was cast very quickly. Well, it was very quick because I had to fly back from New York. So there was no time to do anything. But I was pretty sure I got the tone of it by going online and looking at clips and things. So I was all done with the job when I finally started watching it. And now I'm binging it and completely addicted. Well, uh, Maxine Blackmore, a very interesting woman. (laughs) How uh, How would you describe her approach to her business dealings? Well, I had a whole thing in my head which I talked to the producers about. And then I joked, can you tell the difference in my subtext? Uh, But to me, um, the reason she took such good care of her husband is that it would be very bad for the um, NASDAQ if he died. (laughs) (laughs) So that was my subtext, that she was all about money and protecting it. Well, it was great to see Bronson Pinchot as well. I had no idea Uh, he was doing it. Uh, a, a very fun part for him, uh, obviously there, but boy, everybody top to bottom. Uh, of course, Don Cheadle uh, is fantastic, but just such a, a deep roster of talent on this show. I know. And when you watch the show in the first season, it's so incredibly wacky and out there because they have these, well, this whole group of people that I sort of call the rustics, like in Shakespeare, you know, the mechanicals. <laughs> the rude mechanicals. Who are the rude mechanicals who are um, doing coke and work at the trading company. And then you have the four leads, I guess you'd say, five leads. And they're just as out there. But somehow these actors make you care about them amidst all this 
craziness and the way they're acting and the double crossing and triple crossing and but they're all actually you find out so um, unsure of themselves in a way and Andrew's character changes entirely mm. because he winds up being so much smarter than you think and I mean from the first episode Don's character to me was well what I got was that the guy was an absolute asshole but didn't want to be he just didn't know how else to present himself and to me that the character studies are fascinating you mentioned Don Cheadle's character and even just within yeah. last night's episode uh, there, there was a depth there that I didn't expect the way the show began you know I don't think he can do anything without depth mm. I think he just is a person of such substance and when you meet him he emanates presence like I can't put it any other way he fascinates me always has as an actor and it's unbelievable what he does with this role I really can't get over it all of them and I, I don't want to give any spoilers away because the episode just aired last night so plenty of time for people to get caught up but let's just say um, uh, your character makes a dramatic exit at the end of the episode yes it is very dramatic <laughs> <laughs> and some some of that I had to make all kinds of noises um, in looping to cover uh, yes and so I don't know if it's over or not it's hard to tell they said something to me like you know we might see you again or something cryptic as I left the set for the last time um, but it was very interesting because my husband is a trader I mean an individual trader so I was getting his help <laughs> and I was passing some of his suggestions along to people on the set, how to pronounce things and what they mean, <laughs> that kind of thing. Well, and it captures a moment in time too, very well, right from the opening. It's such a great idea, isn't it? To say, this is what caused Black Monday and to get your attention right from the start. Mm. And then you start to meet all the peoples who seem so inept but their manipulations and some accidental and some on purpose wind up causing black monday it's it's that first season is fascinating it's a countdown to black monday we're talking with julia duffy here on downtown her role in black monday aired last night on showtime but you can get caught up on the whole thing what was it like for you uh being back to work still in the time of covid well <laughs> it was I have to hand it to everybody who runs a very COVID compliant set. I don't know that, that they're all that compliant from what I've heard, but this one was extremely strict. And just think about the fact that people have to all get tested at certain um, uh, times, like every two days or something. And then they have to make up a daily schedule having to do with who got tested when and put that in the schedule and they can't call the actors until they have their test results or anybody on the crew. It's a logistical problem that must require a spreadsheet of epic proportions. But they were very, very compliant. If I stepped off the set and my, because my mask was off when I was working, there was a mask shoved in my face immediately <laughs> by somebody. Well, what's it like out there now for actors as things open up, but it's, it's certainly not back to, to where it was uh, and who knows how long it will be as this uh, variant begins to rise up in places. But w what's the landscape like out there for actors? Well, I think that self-tapes, which were already becoming a very big thing, um, are now here to stay. 
which is fine with me. A lot of actors hate them, and I do understand why they hate them. On the other hand, I like the control that mm. it gives you, so I'm fine with it. But now when there are callbacks, since they still don't do those in person, they're on Zoom. And let me tell you, a Zoom audition is not for the faint of heart. <laughs> it doesn't work very well at all. Well, you I'm sure you're very familiar with all of the um, foibles of Zoom. It's not audition friendly. You could have a whole new chapter in your book, Bad Auditions, on the Zoom experience. I should probably rewrite the whole book because even since I wrote it, which was probably five years ago when I started writing it, the business has changed so much that I would it would be a different book now. It was so great to see uh, you and Bob and uh, all the guys together on the New Heart reunion uh, back, uh, I don't know, five or six weeks ago. We had oh, Bill yeah. Sanderson on, but uh, everybody looked great and sounded great. And uh, that chemistry is even over Zoom still there. And what was amazing is that Bob is still so quick. I mean, he's going to turn, uh, is it 95 or? I think 92 is next birthday, I believe. No, I can't remember now. Mm. Um, I know when his birthday is, but it's in September. Uh, Anyway, he was just so sharp on that Zoom and I was very impressed. I email with him sometimes and he's just as sharp and teases me just as much (laughs) as ever. Um, or I am or something. But um, I was impressed to see him in person be so quick. Yeah, that was wonderful. And and we've talked about it before, but uh, you added so much to the series when you came aboard in season two. Now, you were nominated for an Emmy every single year you were on the show. Uh, Who do we need to go take out? Because who is winning those Emmys, if not you? I know. Well, thank you. Uh, Who do we need to take out? Maybe just the way voting was i think i i'm not an expert here but i think the voting might be a bit more i, I don't want to use the word valid but mm. more substantial now because of people uh having the screeners right because it used to be you had to watch the uh final nominees in person and they were lucky to get 10 12 people to show up that day <laughs> to watch the final ones which you have to sit and watch all in a row and it's just not a cross-section, you know, of the voting uh, populace. I don't know that we've ever talked with you about this, Julia, but uh, I had a, a period in my life when I, I think I was in college or maybe just out of college or maybe had taken a break from college when I, uh, I used to watch a lot of daytime dramas, including The Doctors. Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> and you had a long run, and we've talked to so many people through the year, Brian Cranston, uh, John O'Hurley, and others who, who worked in those daytime dramas, and, and it was a great proving ground for actors. So was it a little easier having had stage experience? Well, I'd say a soap opera is sort of its own um, animal because you work so fast. The hard part about it is that you're never satisfied because it's just too fast. Everything is like your first take and you have barely had time to learn your lines. But um, I think it does make you brave. And I also think working on stage makes you brave. Uh, you had a great run on designing women as well. As a matter of fact, it, it bears mention that the highest ratings for that series were the season when you were a member of the cast. 
Well, I'd love to take all the credit, but (laughs) (laughs) there was a lot of publicity surrounding the show at the time, and two new cast members came on. Uh, It was the year of the presidential nomination. The Clintons were becoming a big thing. Uh, A lot of the politics were infused into the show that year. So there was a lot of reason to be able to promote the show that year, even just besides the two cast editions. You've worked with so many talented ensembles and and been a key part of them. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about uh, the experience uh, of being on Shameless? Oh, God, Shameless. That to me was like guerrilla filmmaking. (laughs) I had never worked with handheld cameras to that extent. And I finally just gave up because, you you know, usually you know where the camera is so that you're playing to the camera and seen on camera. I couldn't even keep track. I mean, sometimes they were just sort of kneeling next to me and I didn't know where the shot was, but oh my God, the actors were so good. Those kids, I mean, those kids just uh, dominated that show all by themselves. I was very impressed with all of them. And then the young man who played my son was so good. It was a great character. Are we finally seeing that maybe with all the, additional opportunities that are out there with streaming services now. Well, it's not where it needs to be, but are we finally seeing more decent roles out there um, for, for adult women? Uh, for the longest time, you know, if you were, you were 35, you were playing somebody's mother or grandmother. And, uh, you know, if you were over 50, forget about it. But it seems like now that there are more opportunities out there. Well, I think there's just so much more production because of all the streaming channels and the fact that this is TV's incredible golden age. And I having that many more productions, especially miniseries and big budgets, so you have large casts. So, yeah, usually there's a mom, <laughs> which is nice. Somebody's mom or, you know, grandma. We're going in that direction, too. Uh, do you have any stage work coming up in the future? Um well, stage is very slow to come back, mm. of course. So uh, I wouldn't even know. I mean, there's very few things announced in, as far as theater, regional theater. And a lot of things were already in the works for one-person shows and that kind of thing so that the theaters could continue. Uh, but I'm, I'm hoping there will be a flurry of it soon. I sure hope so, yeah. We're, we're seeing... Some things open up here in the Northeast, but not, I, I think, I think it's going to be well into the fall or early winter before we start seeing, uh, and even then it'll be smaller cast shows and uh, I don't even think full audiences until the turn of the new year. Right. I don't really expect theater auditions to come along until 2022. That's the hardest part because that's really where a lot of the best roles are for someone my age. And I love doing it. And I am bi-coastal, so I spend a lot of time in New York. And I really hope it will come back full force, but I just have to be patient. Well, we kept, we'll keep our fingers crossed for that. Hope you get to Boston, too. I, I miss seeing you when you did uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner at the Huntington. Um, that That must have been wonderful. It was really a wonderful show, and people kept saying, you know, it's so weird. Like, how can that be a play? And honestly, I think because the movie was such a vehicle for uh, Tracy and Hepburn that the rest of it sort of got 
um, short shrift, what it was really about. And what was interesting is that doing it in play version, st a stage version, without the Tracy Hepburn thing happening, uh, you really saw what it was about. And I have to tell you, I, every night the audience stood up. I mean, just like a, a screaming, pounding, standing ovation. It's so moving. You are uh, such a wonderful presence on Twitter as well. Matter of fact, I think you directed me to somebody I started following recently who's wonderful out there, uh, Ken Reed. Oh, Ken, how do you not know each other? You have to know each other, of course. Well, I, I follow him now because you suggested, and he's wonderful. You have to podcast each other. <laughs> <laughs> what does uh, what is that, uh, I don't want to say do for you, but it, it does provide us all with with an outlet of sorts, um, it can be a cesspool out there at times on, on social media, but uh, overall, what do you get out of it? What do you like to put into it? Well, I think Twitter is wonderful, but I don't engage with mm. controversial things. And I'm not someone who is made an example of ever. <laughs> you know, people just don't pay that much, much attention to me, which is great. For me, it has been, especially during quarantine, I have seen so much kindness from people. I have seen so much um, help and guidance within our industry. The most wonderful people, Jeffrey Lieber, Ed Solomon, um, Warren Light, who's the showrunner of Law & Order, uh, reaching out to actors and writers. And uh, I like the idea that they sort of are bypassing the gatekeepers and paying attention to each other and their needs and helping other, you know, people with their careers. People who are famous are very helping other people who are struggling. It's it's quite something to see. So I find it very gratifying and heartwarming. And I know people don't say that about Twitter, but my Twitter feed is, and it allows me to be in touch with a lot of people from my past because a lot of my career took place before the internet and before email, keeping in touch with people just didn't really happen. Even though you had this intense experience working with them, right? it was hard to have it continue. For instance, yesterday I was texting uh, for a while with Andrew Rannells because we bonded on the set, but before that wouldn't have remained, you know, before the internet and texting and Twitter. Well, it's good to see some positives out there, and I, and I find that, too, and I think it's in the way I, I curate my feed that uh, I, I like most. I like positive people uh, when I can. I like dealing with them and, and joking around with people and comparing things we have in common and, and try to do that more than find the things that divide us, which is often the coin of the realm there. Yes, and I think one of the greatest things that I saw, and it became a very big thing during quarantine is that all kinds of celebrities, especially comedians, interestingly, talked about their struggles with mental illness. And having had that affect our family, it's, it is so invaluable, I can't tell you, for people to realize, the people who are struggling, that they aren't abnormal, that it's almost common, accomplishes so much. And it helps the family so much to know that their loved ones are getting that message from the universe much better than they could get from them or their own therapist. 
that all of these people are doing it. It's becoming a thing now. And without Twitter, Twitter is especially uh, doing that. It, it it has, I think, made a huge difference and will continue to. Well, that's wonderful to hear. Uh, Julia, you were absolutely wonderful on Black Monday. I, I don't know that anybody could have said you look like a whore with the level of uh, <laughs> <laughs> certitude that you did. Well, they wrote some very funny dialogue, and Akilah Green, whose script it was, was she was the loveliest person. Now I follow her on Twitter. So it's very fun. Every time I work, I get to expand my universe because of Twitter. Well, be sure and check out Julia on Black Monday on Showtime. Julia, it's always good to talk with you. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. You're welcome, Rich. I'm glad to be here, and I'll see you on Twitter. Always fun to talk with Julia Duffy, a great friend of the show, and uh, check out Showtime's Black Monday for an outstanding appearance by Julia in a very funny role, Bronson Pinchot, as her husband... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> with a lot of cocaine. <laughs> it's, uh, well, it's a great cast of that, too. So uh, I think you'll enjoy it if you are into edgy comedies. Great stuff uh, with Julia Duffy. Our thanks to her. Thanks to author Jonathan Taplin as well, talking about his book, The Magic Year, Scenes from a Rock and Roll Life. We remind you, Downtown is brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. And we'll see you next time on Downtown, the podcast.